Hello, and welcome back to Hope, a podcast wishing to inspire listeners everywhere with weekly stories and personal testimonies from our wide range of guests. The Webster's Dictionary defines hope as a desire accompanied by expectation of or belief in fulfillment. I'm your host, Danny Daniel, and thank you for listening. Today, we're going to hear from two powerful guests with very different stories to tell. And that's what we're about, the stories to tell. First, we're going to hear from Craig King, who was diagnosed with cancer his senior year of high school and has now been cancer-free for 20 years. He now works as a cancer advocate by his work with Camp Chemo and has recently published a book. After Craig, uh, we will hear from Lindsay Young, who survived a fatal helicopter crash last year. You know many people that have done that? She will explain what it is like to be near death and how it has changed her life for the better. Again, thank you for listening, and remember, you can find us on our website and social media. Let's get started with Craig King. I have Craig King with us this morning, um, and we're really pleased because he has done so much for so many. I don't think in life it's what you do for yourself as much as it is what you do for others that really, really counts and can go into your legacy column. Uh, He was diagnosed with uh, bone cancer, osteosarcoma, if I pronounce that right, in 1999, as a senior in high school. You know, your senior year in high school is supposed to be great. It's supposed to be something you really look forward to and can focus in on, but yet he had to focus in on this uh, condition. Uh, So I guess you were just devastated when you found out about it. Yeah, absolutely, Danny. And first of all, thank you for having me on your podcast. I was happy to be here. Uh, That experience, Danny, of going through my entire senior year and not knowing what's going on um, and finally to be diagnosed that summer after I graduated high school. Um, Devastating is the appropriate word, uh, but I also had tremendous support uh, from my family, uh, friends, and and just the community just rallied around me. Uh, So yeah, devastating is an accurate term to describe that experience that I went through. But like I tell people all over when I speak or um, when I have the chance to encounter any young person, that experience propelled me to so many uh, great things that I was able to do. It would be a true statement that, and it's kind of odd to look at it that way, but had you not had that condition, you probably not would have not done some of the things you've done by, by stretch any stretch of imagination. You're exactly right. You know, when I, when I think about the people that I've been able to influence, especially young children affected by cancer, Uh, Most times people find their passion in their pain. And, you know, for me, you know, not being diagnosed with cancer, it's safe to say that I probably would not have been a 20 year counselor at Camp Chemo uh, working with five and six year old boys and girls that have been diagnosed with cancer. I would not have uh, worked so closely with the American Cancer Society, uh, advocated on Capitol Hill for increased funding for pediatric cancer research and also advocating for people with physical limitations and disabilities and and so many other things that I've been afforded to do because my story and the pain that I went through has served as inspiration to so many other people. And so absolutely, you know, I I agree with that statement wholeheartedly. That's exactly what our purpose is, 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 is for folks to convey their stories to us that are inspirational to others. And you're doing exactly that. Let me ask, did you have plans to go to, uh, college or something like that? Or did you go? I did. I did. I I did have plans to go to college. 
Uh, unfortunately, after being diagnosed and consulting with my doctors, they found it to be best that I take a year off from attending college. And uh, so that year, uh, from July of 99 until May of 2000, um, was spent in the hospital with surgeries as well as uh, receiving chemotherapy treatment from the cancer that I was diagnosed with. But I eventually attended uh, South Carolina State University in the fall of 2000. And, and got a degree there? I did. I received my degree in elementary education, um, and then I became a third grade teacher in that same community in Orangeburg, uh, teaching third grade for seven years. And while doing that seven years, I also received my master's in rehabilitation counseling um, from South Carolina State University because, Danny, it was important for me to have techniques, even though I had the story and the testimony. I know that my path was going to take me in, a, in, in such a way where I was going to be um, working with children diagnosed with cancer because that was the passion that I had. I wanted to uh, work with them in a counselor setting. And so receiving that degree was very important to me because I learned some technical skills on how to work with um, that very unique population. We'll, we'll we'll call you a specialist, that's for sure, <laughs> in what you do and, and you specialize in it and done well. You've been cancer-free for 20 years now. Uh, and 20 30, years. I understand you're 38 years old and you have a, a wife and a, and a child. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. 20-year uh, cancer survivor. Uh, my anniversary date is May 2nd of every year. And so um, been a cancer survivor 20 years. Met my wife in 2013 at church. She was the director of the children's ministry there, and I started volunteering there. And, you know, I saw the twinkle in her eye <laughs> and um, I was blessed in that union to have a daughter as well. Um, Sanaya was 11 uh, when I met my wife. And so she is 16 now and um, she is the light of our life. And we have a new fur baby, Kobe, a Labrador. <laughs> that is fantastic. Well, no family is really complete without a dog or a cat, huh? <laughs> That's correct. Exactly right, Dan. I know that she's been a terrific supporter for you throughout the years. She has. She has. Uh, Tasia has been uh, so phenomenal in supporting me. And, you know, when we met, uh, she knew about my work uh, with children with cancer. She knew that that meant that I had to be away from home, traveling, speaking, going to camp, um, planning for different events uh, that support that. And she has been such a trooper uh, um, and supporter uh, in all of that, her and my daughter. So it's been good to have uh, that helpmate that supports the things that are important to me. And I do the same for her as well. Well, you, you folks are like a team. That's all there is to it. Uh, and supporting that's each right. other, knowing each other has the same passion to help people. I think that's your wife as well. Does she, is she a teacher as well? She she was a teacher. So she uh, was teaching third grade when I met her here in Columbia. And now she uh, moved up the ranks in Richmond School District 2. And now she is a technology integration specialist with the district. And so she is actually now uh, helping teachers prepare for what learning will look like in the fall. And, you know, that's a day by day um scenario we don't know exactly how it's going to look but so she is definitely in education as well now let's talk about camp chemo sure. uh and what is that where is that and what do you do yes so camp chemo is an oncology camp for children with cancer and their siblings 
and we have children from ages five until 18. Uh, right now, we are located at River Oaks Retreat in Honeyed Path, and we service probably between 100 to 130 kids each summer. It's a week-long summer camp where uh, children and their parents, they don't pay any um, money to attend. Um, it's all financed by donors. And it's just like any other summer camp, Danny, where they swim, canoe, woodworking, arts and crafts, all the fun things that you can think of. Uh, probably the num number one thing that they enjoy is being able to eat what they want <laughs> at mm. camp. And mm. the unique part about Camp Chemo is we have a full hospital staff there to take care of the needs of those um, kids that are currently going through treatment or suffering any post-treatment issues. So we have a doctor that's on staff 24 hours as well as nurse nurses. And so um, that's what Camp Chemo is all about. And um, we, I just absolutely love being there. I've been there for 20 straight summers as, as a counselor. When you say you counsel them, what do you mean by that? Do you try to encourage them, inspire them, uh, tell them that life's going to get better and all these other things? Sure. So um, we do exactly that, you know, but at the same time, um, Danny, it's so important for Camp Chemo to be a place of normalcy where, you know, in their household or in, even in their immediate community back home, uh, sometimes they're labeled as the child that has cancer. But at Camp Chemo, they are just another kid because everybody there at camp understands exactly what they're going through. And so it's easy for us to have a normal camp, but we do have those instances where um, my experience and and other experiences of counselors that are cancer survivors are able to give them that hope and that motivation and and um, be there when they're having a difficult time. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's all of those things combined. Well, you know, we all need hope. And that's the, the basis for, again, our, our podcast here is that we want to inspire people. We want to give them hope, uh, have the access to hope. And that's exactly what you do. And maybe... Some of those kids that you talk to go away from there and says, look, there really is hope, you know, and that's, I guess that's your objective. Absolutely. Um, hope, hope is the number one thing that I think all of us can grab onto. And in my experience, Danny, hope comes in the form of the experience of others. And what I mean by that is, you know, when you're going through a difficult time, whatever that may be, and for me, it was being diagnosed with cancer. I received the most hope from talking to people who had been through what I was going through at that time. It didn't mean that my parents and my friends, they didn't care because they, they offered something that was important to me as well, that support. But as far as hope, hope comes from the experience of others. And so um, it, it's important for me to display that. And it's important for me. It was very important for me to give that in the form of the book that I wrote in 2018, uh, The Path to Exceptional Living, 15 Lessons to Living an Extraordinary Life. The Path to Exceptional Living is a practical leadership book that can be picked up by a middle school student, a CEO of a company, a community leader. And it talks about tapping into those everyday experiences that you have um, and finding a leadership quality within them or a quality that leads you to a more uh, exceptional life. And so the stories and exceptional lessons within the book are from complete strangers, stories and lessons from my family members, um, experiences that I've had. And, you know, it's just a great book to read if you're just trying to find hope, if you're trying to find purpose in 
the, the role of leadership in all of our lives because we're all our leaders. Well, we all are leaders to a certain extent, and I agree with you there, but many of us don't find the way to project our leadership, and you have done that in a very special way. And we're, uh, I'm in awe because I look at these uh, commercials on TV about St. Jude and all these other cancer hospitals for children and all like that. I guess some of your uh, patients come from there. Right, yeah. You know, a lot of our patients, you know, and give a big shout out to our children's hospital here, right here in Columbia. Um, most of our patients actually are treated here in Columbia. And, you know, our clinic staff there, they do a tr- tremendous job. And and so being able to connect with those families now um, as a cancer survivor, it means the world to me to be able to extend that hope into them. Well, very quickly, because we're about out of time here, unfortunately, uh What's the idea of love circles uh, as it relates to your path to exceptional living book? Absolutely. Love circles, uh, the last exceptional lesson in my book, and it talks about the importance of giving those positive affirmations to the people around you. And love circles began at Camp Chemo. Um, It began one year when one of the counselors um, began going around the room and giving positive affirmations to every counselor in the room. And, And that was maybe seven, eight years ago. And it's just transformed into something that um, I take into my everyday life where the people around me that are important to me, even complete strangers, I make sure to give them some type of positive positive affirmation um, to show that they are important and and to give them hope. Well, Craig, we are out of time. We'd like to get people to pick up your book, Path to uh, Exceptional Living. And we are so happy to have had you here and so proud of what you're doing. And we just ask you to keep up the good work. Thank you, Danny, so much for having me on your podcast and I look forward to connecting to your listeners more. Before we get into our next guest, I wanted to remind our listeners to follow us on social media for updates on our show. We are on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, along with our website. Remember, if you have a story to tell, we want to hear from you. Go to our website and fill out the form and we will get back to you. Maybe you'll be on our show. Now, on to our next guest, helicopter crash survivor, Lindsay Young. Hello, Lindsay. Hi, is this Danny? This is Danny. Glad to have you on the show. Uh, yeah, I think pleasure. You, you're breaking a record for our new series, uh, The Furthest Away. <laughs> yeah, where are you guys located? Are you in the East Coast somewhere? That little state called Georgia. Oh, yeah, we are a long ways from there. And we played y'all in football 100 years ago sometime, I think. But, uh, <laughs> and I've been to Hawaii. It's a great, great state, just a wonderful state. Uh, what brings somebody like you out to Hawaii, and uh, what, what are you doing now professionally? So I will fully admit that I went to Hawaii following a surfer boy when I was in my early 20s. Um, and that didn't work out, but the place definitely did. And I was coming from Canada, so this is not my home state or home country, but fell in love with the place and went back to graduate school and became a wildlife biologist. Good night. Where did you get that degree? Uh, so I did my undergraduate in Canada at the University of British Columbia, just in zoology, and then did my master's and PhD at the University of Hawaii. In other words, you know a little bit about birds, right? I know a little bit about birds, yes. Well, that's fantastic because I don't know anything except to try to get some hummingbirds in my backyard, and I haven't been able to be <laughs> successful with that yet. 
Uh, well, you got to do a lot of bright colors and a lot of sugar water. Pretend like you're a flower. Uh, well, I, I get called that sometimes. Uh, but it, what do you do specifically with the birds? I mean, uh, I know you don't just do uh, baths. Uh, it's much more <laughs> important than that. What do you do with yes. the birds? So I run a nonprofit organization that my husband and I founded, and we do conservation actions. Um, so basically the on-the-ground activities, whether it's building preserves or controlling predators, that help Hawaii's endangered birds. So Hawaii has 1% of the landmass, or even less than 1% of the landmass in the U.S., and yet we have one-third of the endangered bird species. Um, and so we're really disproportionately impacted by all of the things that threaten species on the mainland are much worse here. So there's a really, really high need for this work. Um, and we try and partner with state and federal agencies as well as private landowners to accomplish those goals. Well, what is the primary means of uh, preserving the birds? I, I don't understand that situation too well, and I know you do. <laughs> Yeah. So on islands, if you think of before people got here um, in Hawaii, we only really had plants and some insects, the nice ones, actually, the mosquitoes and centipedes, none of that stuff. And birds, we didn't have anything furry. So no cats, no dogs, pigs, deer, none of that. So it was basically a land of birds and flowers, if you think of it that way. And when people arrived here, they brought their domesticated animals or things as stowaways. So Rats and pigs and dogs and cats, all of those things eat our birds. And so a lot of our efforts actually go towards trying to create safe places for them that don't have those animals in them. So our main tool is actually fencing. We build a lot of fences to keep those predators out and not just, you know, the typical hog wire thing that you might see on a ranch, but things that will even keep mice out of areas. And then we get rid of all of those animals on the inside so that the birds have these kind of safe refuges. And that's worked very well for how long? We, as an organization, have been doing that for about 12 years. And, you know, the concept of doing predator control on islands has been going on for decades, really. Okay. So if we want to see some of the most beautiful, uh, even rare birds in the country, if not outside of the country, we would come to Hawaii. Yeah, exactly. If you want to see the rarest birds in the world, they are here. Well, why did you originally go to Hawaii? Now, I think that comes to the crux of what we're trying to look at as, as far as your experience was. Yeah, so when I um, was an undergraduate, I wanted to do a semester abroad. Um, I was one of the not cool kids that lived at home during college with their parents because I got a scholarship to the school, you know, down the street from my house. So I lived at home and by my third year was just kind of dying to get out of the house and again, this is kind of pre-internet days, but on the bus stop, there was this little flyer that said sail around the world on a ship and get college credit. And I thought, oh, all right, this can't be real, but <laughs> I'll send in and see what happens. And it was, and that program was called Semester at Sea. And so I did that program and, you know, got on the ship for the first time, having not spent a lot of time on ships, having never lived away from home. Um, and I was telling other students that I've had in the past, like the first two weeks were really, really hard. We sailed straight from Vancouver to Japan. 
And I was super lonely. I'm kind of introverted. I didn't talk to people. So I spent all my time on the bow of the ship just watching what was going on. And there were these birds that were following our ship for thousands of miles. And I was just fascinated by these things. And I had no idea what they were at the time. I just, they kind of became, you know, my comfort and solace when I was on this difficult portion of this experience. And those turned out to be Laysan and Blackfooted Albatross. And so, you know, fast forward, years later, I end up in Hawaii and and starting my graduate program and trying to figure out, like, what do I want to study? I know I want it to be animals and zoology related, but what is it? And I kept on thinking about these birds that, you know, I'd watched so intensively years before when I was on the ship and started learning more about them and realized they nested of all places on the island that I was on. So it was a coincidence that I'd kind of moved here and that was where they nested, but then it felt like fate at that point. So that kind of determined what I studied for my PhD and master's program. And then ultimately what I've gone on to do. So all of the actions that we do today as an organization um, benefit albatrosses as well as all of the other species in Hawaii. Well, my hat's off to you because I don't know anything about birds. And now I know a little bit about birds. <laughs> Let me ask you, did did you have an, uh, an, a close encounter with a helicopter one time? <laughs> yes. Um, so some of the birds that nest in Hawaii, some of the seabirds specifically, these are birds that eat fish out in the ocean. And they come back to land to breed. They nest in these really, really um, inaccessible areas up in the mountains, basically where the predators can't get to them and also the people. And people thought that these things had been extinct on Oahu, which is where Honolulu is, the largest city in Hawaii. Um, they thought they'd been extinct here for hundreds of years, and no one had actually looked for them. And so a few years ago, we started putting out basically little almost spying devices, things that record the sounds of the forest. And we were listening to those recordings for the sounds of the birds just to see if they were there. And it turns out they were. So we were super excited to have discovered this species that we thought was extinct on this island hundreds of years before. And so we started putting more of these things out. And so more of these song meters is what they're called. And this was last year. Um, and we were putting song meters on to access those places in Hawaii. It is done by helicopter. And this is not, you know, where you're landing in a clear spot. Often our LZs, our landing zones, as they're called are about the size of a good size area rug in your living room. One skids on, one skids off. It's not for the faint of heart, but this is normal. This is part of my job. So we flew up and we put these song meters on. And then as we were done for the day, um, we lost power at about 2000 feet in the most remote part of the island. And we did auto rotation or it's a fancy way of saying like semi-controlled free falling for about a minute um, before we crashed. And in that minute, I've told this story to only a few people, actually. There's not many people that have heard it publicly. You know, the first thing we're taught in flight safety is, well, if your power runs out, you're more or less dead. So there was no freaking out over what we were going to do. There's just not much you can do. And so we went through, or at least I personally went through this series of kind of almost automated thoughts. It was sort of like being in a dream. Because I thought these were my last moments on earth, basically. And the first thought was, had I been a good person? Which I thought was interesting. That was my first reaction, was self-reflection. Um, and thankfully, the answer was mostly yes. I'm certainly not perfect, but I do try and be kind and to take other people into consideration. 
And then the next thought was about my kids. I have two children and I just thought like, have I done a good job for my kids? Have I set them up for happiness and for success in the world? And for the most part, yes, I've done everything in my power to give them a good start in life to be good people. I was just really sad um, that I wasn't going to get to see them, but I knew they had a great dad and that they would probably be fine. So sort of looking towards the future. So self-reflection, looking towards the future. And then the last thing is we were um, about to hit the ground. I just thought like, God, I'm not done. (laughs) I love what I do. I'm very passionate about it. It gives me great satisfaction. I have a sense of purpose. And I was just upset that I wasn't going to get to finish. There was so much more I felt like I had to contribute. It's kind of the opposite of what everyone says, like when you're on your deathbed, you know, you're not thinking about work. I actually was. (laughs) Um, And I I wanted to be able to do more of it. And so at that point, you know, it was clear we were going to meet our moment pretty soon. And I went into the brace position. And somehow by some fluke, our tail rotor caught a tree which almost acted like if you think about an aircraft carrier when those planes are landing and they catch that elastic band and they shoot forward and then back and it breaks that momentum. That's what happened to us. The tail rotor caught onto a tree and we shot forward, but then we flipped back and we landed relatively gently upside down in the trees. I I don't know about you, but I I call that a miracle. (laughs) That's a miracle. Oh, completely. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I opened my eyes and for a minute I thought, okay, am I dead or am I alive? I'm not quite sure what's happened here. And we were all alive. And so all of this, you know, thinking about the end of the world and I, or at least my life, which that's a telling statement that I said end of the world, but end of world as I know it, um, didn't happen. And so it was such a great moment. We, you know, after the panic subsided and we got safely out of there, which is not easy when you're hanging upside down in a tree. Um, we were all just so, so grateful and happy that we were alive. So it truly was a life-changing moment for me. Well, it sounds like that without any question. Uh, do you still ride helicopters or does it cure you of that? I do. Um, I get asked that a lot. And there are a few reasons. One, for a good portion of what we do, there is no other way to get into these locations. And so if I don't, I'm not able to do part of my job. And then the second is I'm the leader of my organization. And if I'm not willing to go into one, what does that say to my staff? Um, The reality is, for the most part, they are relatively safe. And the accident that happened to us was because we ran out of gas, <laughs> which is somewhat shocking, um, but preventable. And so we've revised our safety procedures and our communications with pilots to make sure that that doesn't happen again. So it's setting an example as well as being able to continue the work that we do. Well, you you have a great passion for what you do. It's obvious. And uh, it has done an awful lot of good in helping other people understand those birds, helping y'all understand them. And uh if you look at, at I, these experiences that you had with a helicopter and, and the near misses, you might say, the, the awful encounters, uh, what has it provided as far as a foundation for you to go forward with what you're doing, uh, as opposed just to be something adverse that happened to you? I mean, my 
job while rewarding is incredibly difficult as the story said there we sort of have you know someone on our team has a near miss almost every year just by the nature of what we do but when we look back at the difference that we have made and i can see that in literally the number of acres of land i have protected and i know the actual number of birds that i've saved i can quantify my impact uh and communicate that to others. And so by staying positive and keeping the course, it shows others that even though there's these huge, you know, seemingly insolvable problems, you still can do things. And even though it's small, your contribution, you know, coupled with whatever is inspiring others to do the same, those things do make a difference. And I think it's more important, you know, than ever to consider doing those things in light of what's going on in our world. Uh, very well put. Uh, I think if you're making a difference as you are, if we could all make a difference, you might say, in whichever field we're in, it would it would be such, such a contribution to our society and our culture. Well, you've got a great story, and that's what we're all about here. It's a story of hope that if you get into a bad situation and start reflecting a little bit, it'll bring you out of that situation uh, a better person, and that's exactly what you've done. We thank you for taking care of the birds in Hawaii and uh, keeping your family going and uh, hope you have a great balance of the year. Likewise, my pleasure. This episode recorded at Vega Studios, produced by Danielle DeHall. Remember to go to our website, thedanydanielshow.com, to submit your story, if you have one to tell, or even if you don't, we'd like to hear from you. Also, come back next week and weeks after that for more episodes. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Danny Daniel.